0: grateful to you for providing for us we recognize your awesome power we recognize that you are the sustainer the creator the inventor of all and yet you see each of us and you love each of us and you are present to each who would ask seek and knock And so today I pray for each spiritual seeker here today, for each of us, no matter where we fall on that spectrum, all of us who are seeking truth, seeking you, that you would speak, that you inspire, and that you would guide us into the way everlasting. I pray this in the name of Jesus, the risen Christ. Amen. All right, so we're jumping into the uh, content now solidly of Mark. So what I want you to do is get a Bible because I'm going to be reading um, directly from it here a lot. If you don't have one back there on that shelf, you feel free to go grab one. If you have one on your device, use that. If you don't, download the AC3 app. It's got a button right there. You can go to the U version which I highly recommend. All kinds of translations there you can use. So have that handy because we're going to be referring to Mark a lot uh, for the next three weeks. We're getting right into the content. Now, before we do that, I want to show you some examples of our top. The unlikely hero is what we're talking about this week, this beginning part of our story. And I want to show you a couple of examples. This one first. This is from the Lucas universe, right? Luke Skywalker, who at this point is saying, but I want to go to Toshi Station and pick up some more power converters. Uh. Really? This is who's going to unite the force in the universe? Is this whiny, 17-year-old, unlikely hero? Next, we have from the Marvel Universe. Anybody know who this is? No, that's Peter Parker. He's a 15-year-old kid who gets shoved in his locker at, at high school. Talk about your unlikely hero. Next, Stan Lee's got a thing for this. Bruce Banner, nerdy scientist, can barely defend himself, turns into the Hulk. That's amazing. And finally, that's Captain America, right? So you'll see the theme there. Let's go to the uh, Tolkien universe. These guys save Middle Earth, and they're three and a half feet tall. Uh, that's it. The whole, You can make a case that the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy is all about the unlikely hero. But that's the point. But let's go on. How about the Pixar universe? This guy. Marlin, is a neurotic, pill popping. I mean, this guy needs therapy. But by the end of the movie, he has traveled the entire ocean and heroically saved Nemo. Amazing. And then there's this guy who the Saturday night crowd said that just given a couple of years apparently in my glasses, <laughs> that I'm almost there, but, you know, Carl Fredrickson is the unlikely hero. We see the story. He's a grieving widower with one of those walkers. Not just a regular cane. He needs the four tennis ball version, you know, to get along. By the end, he's hauling a house around and saving dogs. and It's amazing. He's the unlikely hero. And, hey, listen, because we need examples of women unlikely heroes, there's Hermione Granger, right? She's the unlikely hero. Now, you're not supposed to use this word around Harry Potter fans. She's a mudblood. Sorry. Apparently that's a bad word. What it means is she was muggle-born. She's only half magical, right? And she's not supposed to be a hero, but she is. She's part of the team that saves the wizarding world. It's absolutely amazing, right? So here's the point. Each of these characters is born into and, and is part of a set of rules, there's, a, there's a, a, a set of boundaries around them, and at some point in the story, they break out of the rules and become who they were really meant to be. The unlikely rules, the container they were in, they broke out of, and they finally became who they were meant to be, and in each of the cases, a hero. Now, why have I only chosen fictional examples? Why no real-life examples? Because we're talking about the experiences that are worthy enough for us to make up stories. What are the cosmic experiences that are so captivating that we search for them? We celebrate the real ones, and when we could make up any story we wish, we could just make up anything, we continually return to this one. Why? Why do we keep choosing the unlikely hero? Well, I think it's because we can relate to it. Last week, we talked about relating to the larger story we see in Mark, the intro conflict resolution. This week... It's the unlikely hero. We're looking a layer deeper. We can all relate because we, all of us, have felt at some point in our life a call to greatness. Every single one of us. Every person seems to have a feeling, an innate sense that they are unique, that they have a unique purpose and calling, and yet we all universally suffer from doubt about ourselves, and in some cases, uh, deep and even debilitating. We were made in the image of God, each of us given a role that suits us perfectly, that fulfills us completely, and meets the needs of the world around us. But our ability to understand that role and walk it out became corrupted in the fall. So while we still feel the lingering call, that hero sensibility in all of us, like we were made for great things, it's true, we feel it, we simultaneously don't believe it. We can't ever quite get a grasp of it. Oh, we will inflate ourselves to no end with fabricated greatness. You know, we tend to pick on the poor millennials all the time about participation trophies, but let's be honest, they're not the first generation to clamor for acceptance and attention, boomers. Uh, And it's not just us. Pick any point in history. Read 1 Samuel in your Bible to see just one example. Israel was not content with being the chosen people of the Most High God. wasn't good enough for them. They were suffering a collective inferiority complex and so wanted to have a king like all the other nations around them, even though God had called them to live differently. They had been called to greatness, but it just wasn't the kind of greatness they wanted to do. North Korea wants to be taken seriously as a world power, but because they have no vision of what they truly should be, they make ridiculous and dangerous decisions to manufacture a false greatness. Small men who act big. Poets and dancers who imprison themselves in cubicles so they can win the materialism game. True beauties who conceal it beneath layers of makeup and tawdry clothing because they can't believe in a beauty beyond what the media shows them. We suffer from the unlikely hero complex. And that's why so many of our stories contain that narrative. Each of us were made to live out our own hero story, but the sin we were born into obscures that identity, and we can sometimes live our entire lives tragically never realizing the heroic potential that God has placed in us, each of us. And so many of us live vicariously through the fictional characters who managed to succeed. But we don't realize that they are all based on the true story of the one unlikely hero who got it right. Right. The unlikely hero who didn't try to manufacture his own identity. He didn't develop his own PR. No self-promotion or showboating. He didn't buy into the now almost fully accepted lie that you can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. I'm sorry. You can't be anything you want to be. But, but, you could be the most amazing you that God made you to be you have that potential Jesus as our example simply lived out the role the father had given him he just lived it out the script that God handed him you can read about it in John chapter 5 John chapter 12 two amazing statements Jesus makes he says I don't say anything the father doesn't tell me to say and I only do that which I see him doing that's it that was his job that was his role now, as we read the first three chapters of Mark, really the first two, we're just going to touch verse 3 a little bit today. We're going to spend most of our time in those first two chapters. We will discover in here a three-step process for us to successfully live out the unlikely hero narrative. With it, we can get out of the role that we've burdened ourselves with, that sin and fallenness have burdened us with, get that out of the way and actually fully start to realize God's potential in us. We see it in the first two plus Chapters of Mark. Jesus models it for us in a way that we can then live with purpose, with freedom, with hope and adventure simply by becoming who God made you to be. Who God made you to be. And it's a real simple thing. And I broke it down into three things. And honestly, my hope is that we will remember this for the rest of our lives. I hope I do. Here it is. You ready for the formula? Three steps. Number one, follow the rules. Number two, break the rules. Number three, walk the talk. All right, now I know there's a clear paradox in there. and We're going to spend some time unpacking that. But just say it with me so we hope we remember. Follow the rules. Break the rules. Walk the talk. Okay? Let's take a look at the first. Follow the rules. The first thing Jesus does by following the rules, is he establishes his credibility. Now he's God incarnate. He could have just kicked down the doors of the universe and go, "Bah! I'm here." He doesn't do that. He establishes credibility. He follows the rule. Now I want you to think about how we uh, how we can uh, establish credibility. It's through credentials. One of the first things he does is establish his credentials. Think about doctors; you don't just go to some guy that's operating out of the back of his van and says, "Yeah, yeah, I'm a doctor." No, no, I, can, I want to see that license. I want to know where you went to medical school. Accountants, engineer—credentials matter. When it was time for me to get ordained here at AC3, get—you know—you know, this could have gotten ordained on online for ten bucks, right? You can too. But is that a legitimate credential? No. Needed to go to Bible school. Needed to get into the apostolic flow of teaching. So I was taught by people who were taught by people who were taught by people who were taught by Jesus. The credentials. That's why you can call me reverend. Please don't call me reverend. But that's what it says on the credentials, right? So credentials matter. And Jesus, right out of the gate, does this. All right, here we go. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus was baptized, Christian, just like you were. He didn't have have to do that. But he wanted to establish his credentials. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. He establishes his credentials through two ways. First, he gets under the leadership of an established rabbi, another teacher. Now, they, a lot of people hated John. The religious leaders hated him, but they all recognized he was a legit teacher. And so Jesus comes in under his authority and then moves out from beyond. it. John didn't get it at first. We read in Matthew that when Jesus approaches him and says, hey, baptize me, this is what John says. Um, I don't want to do it. But Jesus said, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. We've got to do the right thing. We're going to follow the rules. And once Jesus pointed that out, then it says John consented. Then he consented. And then we get the most amazing credential of all. It's called a theophany. And that is when God appears in some kind of physical form, like a dove descending, and he said what? This is my son. This is Messiah. With him I am well pleased. Boom. Boom. That is some serious credentials. So Jesus starts by saying, I'm not just going to come in and claim a whole bunch of authority. I'm going to come in and go through the steps. Next thing he does is he establishes his authority. Credentials, then authority. And he establishes his authority in three realms. Uh, Now, the first one, I want you to think about it. It's leadership. He calls disciples. Now, those of you who have heard about the Global Leadership Summit, I encourage you all to come. And what have I said before? So if you turn around and you see somebody following you, guess what? You're a leader, so you should go to the summit. But the inverse is true. If you think you're a leader, let's say you've even got credentials, and you turn around and nobody is following you, guess what? You're not a leader. (laughs) So a leader without followers is no leader. Jesus establishes authority. Chapter 1, verse 16, by... Bringing in disciples, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once, there's that etho ith, I can't remember the Greek word now. Ethuius. Itho, Immediately, Mark's favorite word, forty-two times. At once. They left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. He immediately establishes authority by choosing disciples. But that's not enough. He then establishes his authority in the spiritual world by doing something absolutely, literally miraculous. He drives out an evil spirit. Verse 21, the next thing he does, notice how Mark is moving us through this process immediately like this. Credentials. Now is authority by uh, getting disciples. Now authority, verse 21, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit, by the way, just bear in mind, these church people all getting together, they had people with evil spirits in church. Everybody's welcome. He cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. You know, there's not, a, there's not a whole lot of mumbo-jumbo. This isn't a magic trick. He just says, be quiet, get out. Boom, it happens. He establishes his authority in the spiritual realm. Boom, done. But that's not enough. He then goes on to establish his authority over the creation. Um, chapter 1, verse 29, through chapter 2, verse 12. But I'm just going to read a little bit from verse 29 In chapter one, here. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew, Simon's mother in law, who was in bed with a fever. And they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Notice this occurs right after. The driving out of the evil spirit, he goes on and begins to heal. And right after that, we see he heals a man with leprosy, and then he heals a paralyzed man. He indicates his authority over the natural world by all these healings. So he establishes authority. I'm a leader. I call my followers. I establish my authority in the spiritual realm, and then I establish my authority in nature, over all of creation. Now, we come to what Rick taught me as the so what moment. Oh, great. We now understand our Bible better. So what? How do I apply this to my life? How does this, what's the meaning to us on a daily basis? And here it is. Friends, in our culture these days, we are too quick to be critical from outside a system. We are unwilling to humbly, like Jesus did, get in and follow the rules. And instead, we'll stand outside all kinds of cultures and communities and whatnot, and we think we know what's going on, and we demand to be heard, and we demand to have our way from outside. We're standing on the shore yelling at the people rowing the boat, you're doing it wrong! Honestly, when it comes to that church leadership, I don't listen to you. You get in the boat with me, now I'm listening to you. But Jesus models it differently. You can see this all throughout culture these days. Let me take two examples. The Black Lives Matter movement, Right? So here's a group of people who are highly critical of law enforcement. And they say they're out to get them, and right? But none of these people, none of them, regardless of their color, the vast majority of them have ever been in law enforcement. They don't know what it's like. I can tell you as a chaplain for the city of Marysville, they put me through some training about a year ago to teach me the the process of what you have to go through to make a decision for the use of lethal force. Guess what? I understand better, now having just a little bit of a glimpse on the inside of what it means to be a law enforcement officer, and I'm a little less critical of those guys and those gals, and I understand the pressure that they're operating under. I'm not saying they're perfect. I'm saying I understand it better because I followed the rules and I went through some of the training. Now, the inverse works too, because we can all sit here and most of us, the rate in Snohomish County, most of us are white. Most of us are of European descent. You don't know what it's like to be a minority in Snohomish County pulled over by a cop, and you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what that's like. I, if you want to know, go to Malawi. Go to Kenya visit, uh visit uh, Lillian's family. DJ, her husband, and I were talking about it. I was in Malawi, and I, was, I found myself in a crowd of local people they're Malawians, so they're all black. I'm the one white guy. A thousand people around me, and I have a wad of cash because I'm going to give out a prize for soccer tournament that's there. Now I know what it's like to be a minority. Now I know what it might be like to have to go through your life not knowing what's going to happen when you get pulled over. So I'm not so quick to be critical, am I? And we do this all over the place. Management, right? <laughs> Management, right? They sit up there. They don't know what they're doing. How do you know? Do you know what it's like to be in the big chair? I don't. Leadership, them, they. Jesus models for us something very interesting here. He comes in to the whole system in an orderly, humble, and respectful way, which all of that means he comes in loving. It doesn't mean he's not going to stir things up. We'll cover that in a minute. But he doesn't come in I want my way. This is what you should... I know it all. So which rules have you put aside? Which rules are you unwilling to follow, but you still expect results? Well, I want to lose weight. Well, you need to eat right and exercise. (laughs) No. I need to manage my money better. You should probably stop spending. No. We do this all the time. You think you know better. It's called hubris. It's a special kind of pride where the rules don't apply to you. Well, if the Son of Man said the rules applied to him, I think it's good enough for us. All right, that's our so what moment. No shortcuts, do the work, take action. But, so what do we just do? We followed the rules. What do we do next? Break the rules. Jesus takes an anti-establishment approach to this whole thing. And I want you to pay attention to the verbs that we're going to go through. First thing he does is he calls outsiders. He doesn't call the Pharisees. He doesn't go to the church leaders. He doesn't go to the A team. He goes to the F team. And he calls these guys. Back in, um, we just covered it, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, he goes to fishermen. Fisherman in that culture, the lowest of the low. And later on, he'll go to Matthew, the tax collector, the most hated guy. Oh my gosh, unbelievable. And he pulls him in. So he calls outsiders. That's rule-breaking, man. That's not how you develop a movement. Next, he practices solitary prayer. Chapter 1, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. You may be wondering, what's, how's that rule breaking? I mean, most Christians do that now. Jews in the first century did not do that. They did not. In fact, they were instructed, not, not specifically not to, but to be very suspicious of it. In fact, to be suspicious of other people who did it. Jesus was living by a set of rules called the Mishnah which was a, a compilation of a lot of man-made rules that had gotten added on to God's way of doing things. And in it, it says, be suspicious of people who go off by themselves. Don't move away from the community and worship. Stay together in the temple, in the synagogue. But Jesus understands intimacy with the Father. He calls Him Abba, Daddy. This scandalized everybody. He started breaking the rules by underscoring and Lifting high the value of intimacy with God. Next, he shows compassion. Verse 41 of chapter, we'll start at 40, chapter 1. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. The key word here is he touched him. you got to understand, leprosy in the first century Middle East It was the worst possible health outcome you could ever have. You were scandalized. You were put on the outside. Generally, you were thought you brought it on yourself by some kind of sinful behavior. The rough equivalent of him touching a leper would be you going up to somebody who'd just been diagnosed with Ebola and just giving him a big kiss right on the mouth. Somebody almost passed out loud. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah, that's what he did. He showed compassion. What does compassion mean? In English, it's a compound word. I don't know if you knew that. Co-passion. Passion Passion is another word for suffering. That's why we see the passion of the Christ. It's suffering. It's to suffer with, co-suffer. He suffered with him. This this is not what Jews did. This is not their view of God. These are not the rules. The rules are you wear a bell so everybody can hear you coming. You stay on the outside of the village and you shout, unclean, unclean, so no one even gets near you. But Jesus rips that rule down and he goes up and touches this leper. Next, he challenges everybody's bigotry. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Everybody, because I'll tell you what, the first disciples that he picked, the fishermen, the working guys, the good Jewish observant guys, hated Matthew. He was the worst. He was, a, he was a sympathizer with the Roman oppressors. And Jesus says, come on in. In fact, let's go have dinner at your house. What? He tears down every wall that his followers could have possibly constructed. And then, finally, he reveals the complete theology God's complete identity. This is how he really starts to tear down rules. And he does this by doing what I call giving sneak peeks of his deity. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus was again, again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered at their, that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. And then it goes on to say, some of these guys brought their buddy who was paralyzed on a mat. They couldn't get in, so they opened up the roof and lowered him down in hopes that Jesus would see him and just heal him. But Jesus does something really amazing. The first thing he says to him is, son, your sins are forgiven. What? I mean, the the teachers of the law recognize this and they say he's blaspheming. Only God can do that. But Jesus is saying, I'm breaking the rules. I'm going to reveal to you your complete theology. You've been waiting for Messiah. You're looking in the wrong place. He's here he's here. The next sneak peek, chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours aren't? Jesus' answer was, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? What's he saying there? He's saying he stands above, he's the bridegroom, he's the centerpiece of the cosmic celebration. They're not going to fast because God is here. This isn't the time to fast. Man, this gets their attention. And he goes on to talk about how you don't pour new wine into old wineskins because they'll burst. You don't sew an old patch of unshrunken cloth onto old cloth, it'll rip. What he's saying is the new theology is coming. The complete theology is coming and it's in me. Their minds were getting blown left and right. The rules are being broken all over the place. Next, chapter 2, verse 23. We're just, again, Mark immediately, immediately, immediately is teaching us here about the unlikely hero emerging. Chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus goes on to explain, well, David did it. And then he goes on to say, you guys have got the law all backwards. Let me tear it down. Let me deconstruct it for you. The Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath, and I'm the Lord of it. What? He's breaking all the rules. He's blaspheming. He's deconstructing by revealing the complete theology. And finally, we see what I call as healing as a protest. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Another time, he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. I mean, is there any question that he's going to make a show of this? All right, all right, okay, let's do it. Let's do this. Get up here in front of everyone. And he heals him. He says, which is, which is lawful, to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? but that you may know. Is that the right story? Wait a second. No, no, that was the other one. Where am I? Three, one through six. Which is lawful, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill, but they remained silent. And he healed him right there on the Sabbath, breaking their rule with healing as a protest. Healing as a protest. Fascinating. These are examples, all examples of God's rules that had been corrupted or failed to be adopted properly, and Jesus deconstructed them. He broke the rules. You know, the original rule was don't hang out with people who will drag you down. Bad character corrupts good, or bad company corrupts good character. That's a good rule. But Jesus understood it had gotten all sideways. Now we don't hang out with that type of people. He says, watch me, fishermen, tax collectors. You don't understand the rule. I'm going to break it. Yeah, Another rule, worship is a communal activity. That's true, but Jesus breaks it. He says, my Abba, my Daddy, I'm going to go out on a regular basis and I'm going to be with him. Your rule, you don't understand the rule, I'm breaking it. Let people reap what they sow. They probably deserve it. Maybe, maybe, but they also deserve compassion. He breaks the rule. And then finally, God is holy, righteous, and totally other. That is true. And now I'd like to shake your hand. I am him. I am he. You don't get it. I am going to mess with your rules. I'm going to kick them all up. I love it. But he does it respectfully. Here's our so what moment. Break the rules. So what? Here's the deal, friends. Jesus does not take God's rules and just break them over his knee and toss them aside. He doesn't, he doesn't just stomp on them. He's not simply doing the opposite of God's laws. It's not simple rebellion. Rebellion is, is a terrible idea because what happens when the rebels are successful? They become the establishment. I mean, welcome to it now. You live in an, an increasing tyranny where the, the, the rebellious, you know, hey, you need to be free to say anything you want, except that. That's just a new tyranny, right? It's not just opposing the rules. Rather, it's about expanding the heart behind them. Listen carefully. Jesus extends the rules beyond their behavioral limit, stretching them to the length of his own identity, and then they snap. They become redundant. They become fulfilled. The law can't contain any longer what is inside them. Now I'm going to give you an extended example here because I think this is probably one of the biggest things we're facing in our culture. It's becoming increasingly popular within church circles to say that anyone who holds to a biblical model for sexual relationships, which is one man, one woman for life, is hateful and close-minded because they hold to that. That's the story we're being told. The trend is to take God's rules for sexuality, gender identity, and marriage and just break them over our knees. These don't work anymore. I'm rebellious. I'm throwing them out. Here's the problem. The Bible's teachings on these subjects have been effectively undisputed since they were written. But suddenly, under intense bullying from the culture, people are abandoning those rules altogether. That's not how Jesus handled it. That's not how he handled those rules. He didn't just break them over his knee and toss them aside. He didn't refuse to attend synagogue. He went to Passover at Jerusalem. He paid his temple tax. He didn't just flout these rules, even though he knew they were passing away at some point, even though he knew they were simply shadows of the real rules which were about to be written on human hearts through his work. He created change from inside. With gentleness and courage, not with shrill protests and demands for recognition. He simply began acting in a new way while inside the boundaries. And let's face it, nothing more was required of him. It was pretty effective, don't you think? Because that's all he did and they still killed him for it. He never committed a crime. His quiet, gentle protest was enough to get him killed pretty effective, I think. Friend, the rules that the church has been operating under need to be broken. For too long, we have kept our doors and hearts closed to people who are different, people who suffer, people who have been treated harshly because of their race, their sexual or gender identity, or their socioeconomic background. We welcome the sinner, right? well, as long as the sins are the ones we can relate to and we don't find them too uncomfortable to look at. That's the part we don't say. You know, I remember the days when as a recovered addict, I got 26 years, as a recovered addict, I was in the camp of those who made church people very uncomfortable. I remember the looks. Well, thank goodness that's changed a lot. There's still room to grow, but it's gotten so much better. Most churches now truly welcome people in recovery. But here's my question. Did we get there to that place of welcome because suddenly the church said, hey, drug addiction is good. You should be an alcoholic. Welcome. Is that what we did? Is that what we did? No, that's not what we did. We have stretched the rules which say, don't be a drunkard and have no other gods before me to their God-ordained limits. We have drawn them out beyond what they mean in terms of behavior, and when they finally snap, it's like a piñata. We see that the rules actually contain the wonder and joy of God's identity for us all along. We just needed to follow them to their conclusion. Following the rules, then breaking the rules, seems like a paradox. But what Jesus did was follow the rules to their limit of love. The law is like the first stage of a rocket. It's good, Paul says, but it's weak. It can't get us all the way to where we belong. Once the rules reveal what needs to change in us, simply obeying them for the sake of obeying them no longer serves a purpose. It would be like hauling an empty, burned-out, first-stage rocket around in orbit. It's dead weight. When Jesus followed the rules all the way to their end, sinlessly, they no longer served the purpose of love and they snapped, revealing the love behind them. Can we as a church move forward holding true to God's rules because we recognize the rules are how God loves us? We don't hold to the rules simply for the sake of being right. Holding to, the rules that it's the, holding to the rules for that reason makes us enemies of Jesus. You understand that? If you're sticking to the Christian rules because that's just what you're supposed to do, that makes you an enemy of Jesus. If you stick to the rules because you know it's God's loving intent for you, now you're on the Jesus team. God intended His rules to be an expression of His love from the very beginning. When they cease to be love in us, we have become God's enemy. The rules no longer serve God's intended purpose because we've twisted them. But abandoning them altogether makes no sense. It makes as much sense as saying, we're just going to celebrate drug addiction and alcoholism because we want them to feel welcome. How much do you have to hate a person to let them kill themselves? Isn't the law about love? We should love. Sometimes that means this needs to change because God's loving rule says so. AC3, the cultural pressure on you to simply break God's rules will intensify. This is going to get harder. You will be persecuted for holding to God's rules concerning sexuality. Now, as I said, there are other rules. There's other stuff, but this is a big one in our culture right now. So don't be surprised. Don't give in and just break those rules. But instead, let the Holy Spirit begin to draw those rules out. Let Him expand them so that you begin to understand why they are there. How they express God's love for you and for the rest of creation. Let that love begin to fill you and you will find that when faced with those cultural pressures, you are not cowed or scared or angry and finger pointy. You are free to love, to grieve and to mourn and even reach out to a world that needs God's good rule. You will find that your heart is beginning to grow beyond the container of the rules. Your heart subsumes it, as Jesus said, fulfills it. And suddenly you will realize that you are now beginning to live out your own unique unlikely hero story. You have been changed. That brings us to the third part in the process, and I'm going to go through this really quickly because I'm keeping you over time. What was the first one? Follow the rules. Walk it out. And here I want you to see how Mark teaches us this. He, he shows us how Jesus walks this out, where Matthew talks it out, right? Matthew was writing for a Jewish audience, so he chooses the Beatitudes, in a sermon that Jesus gave, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And he spells out the unlikely hero scenario. Here's how to be an unlikely hero. Mark, however, in the first two chapters, he shows us how Jesus walked it out. Really quickly. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What are the first red letters in the book of Mark? Repent! Jesus said, step one in recovery, fellow alcoholics and addicts. I am powerless. I need to change my life. Repent. I am poor in spirit. I can't do it. Next, blessed are those who mourn. Remember in uh, verse 41, he touched. He had compassion. He mourned with the leper. He didn't just say, next, next, next. Another thing he didn't do, he didn't eliminate leprosy, did he? He just healed a leper. He mourned with him. Next, meekness. Terrible coincidence of the English language, Meek rhymes with weak we tend to think meekness is some kind of weakness it's the opposite meekness is all of the potential and power contained within you that you don't choose to deploy it's just there and jesus does that he shows restraint when he reveals who he is he did, again he doesn't kick down the door and bring fire and ha ha zeus like lightning bolts though he could he's meek He hungers and thirsts for righteousness. The uh, man with the the shriveled hand. At the end of it, he says, don't tell anybody, but go make the appropriate sacrifices uh, that Moses demanded at the temple. Do the right thing. Follow the rules. We want to be right. We follow the rules. He hungers and thirsts for it. Merciful. Verses 38 and 39, he says to his disciples, let's go to the other villages around here so I can teach there. That's why I came. When I say village, I don't mean a quaint little place like Mill Creek, you know, whatever, the town center. That's a village. No, we're talking about a couple of little mud huts with maybe two or three extended families out in the middle of nowhere. And the Son of Man, the creator of the universe, walks out there to go bring them the good news. This is mercy. Pure in heart. We think that means sinlessness. And in Jesus' case, he is sinless. But what it means here is that you're fully integrous. Full integrity. You are fully yourself. You know who you are. Imagine a bunch of gold dug out of the ground with all the rocks and junk and all kinds of impurities. You throw it in a crucible. You heat it up. All that junk rises to the top and you pull it off. That's called dross. What's left behind? It's Purity. When you think pure heart, it's you, fully who you are, fully who God made you to be. And Jesus walks that out with integrity everywhere he goes. Everywhere he goes. Peacemakers. He welcomes the outsider. Remember, he invites Matthew in, much to the chagrin of his fisherman buddies. He is going to make peace between all peoples. And then finally, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. We don't get to the end of chapter 2. Very beginning of chapter 3, and they're already plotting to kill him. Why? Because he's doing the right thing. Because he's following the rules, but he's breaking the rules. And then he walks it out. Mark provides for us a view of the Jesus life that supplements the view of Matthew here, and vice versa. See how they support each other? Your Bible is a reliable document. So, follow the rules. Break the rules. Walk the talk. But here's the problem. All of us tend to fail at one of these three steps, and I want to just go over this with you. Um, maybe for some of you, your life has been defined by rebellion. Maybe you, you fail from the get-go. We've bought into the lie that self-expression is the highest human value. Nobody, including God, and certainly not church people, have the right to curtail my desires. As soon as we sense an expectation, a responsibility, or an obligation, especially from God, we instantly resent it, we resist it, and we begin sounding the alarm, help, help, I'm being repressed. Monty Python reference, you're welcome. We literally parade our so-called pride in ignoring God's rules through our city streets, and we think that reinventing ourselves any way we like is the highest form of morality we're rule breakers from the get-go. But some of us fail at the next step. We fail step two and focus exclusively on following the rules. We never grow up enough to realize that the law is just meant to reveal that we need a heart transplant. We mistakenly come to believe that the rules are an end in and of themselves. We become the new Pharisees who think that if we simply do this and don't do that, then God will owe us happiness, freedom, prosperity, eternal life, the White House, whatever. There's a legalist in all of us who just wants to tick the boxes, who can't even see the condition of their own hearts through the mess of our motives. Well, I'm a good person. If you've ever said that, if you've ever thought that, and I have, You don't get it. In that moment, you don't get it. Your goodness as our rags to God. Your goodness isn't the point. It's not about the law. Well, at least I've never done that. Oh, my goodness. We should realize the curse that is contained in that, in that thought. And friends, I'm standing up here confessing. It goes through my mind at least daily. When I see something on the news, when I see something on Grove Street, but it's wrong. Finally, some of us may understand the paradox, and we may make it through the first two steps and move beyond the law of grace. We get it. We can say it back. We can even stand on stage and teach it from the Bible. But then we never do anything about it. We don't act. The beauty of living in Jesus' fulfilled law remains locked up as a treasured idea in our minds rather than being released like a boisterous child, free, unashamed, and powerful, changing the world. We neglect to act on what we know. Shame on us for that, church. Shame on us for that. We have this amazing gift. Which do you tend toward? For some of you, it's, it's all about, I'm not going to follow the rules. Your tendency is just instantly. <clears throat> so it's at step one. For some of you, uh, you can get past that, but it's all about, oh my goodness. Oh, I've got to get this all done right. Because if I do, then, then what? And for some, you may have that figured out. You may have been living in the understanding of God's grace for years and years and years. But here you sit. And the unlikely hero never finds their way out into the open. Oh, can we be a church of heroes? Oh, that we would be. Let me pray for you. God, I pray that um, I'll begin with me and help me to walk the talk. God, I pray that um, my brothers and sisters would would walk from this place with the, the potency of your word, touching them right where they they need to be touched, whether it's in their rebellion, whether it's in their legalism, or it's in their laziness. God, speak to my laziness, please. Help me to follow the rules. And in doing so, help me to break them in ways that brings your love to all the dark places, even in our town, where it's so needed. And may you receive the glory and the honor, and the power. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.